All right, today's sermon is titled Messiahship and Discipleship. Messiahship and Discipleship. That could go badly if I say that too fast. In 2010, a pastor by the name of David Platt, raise your hand if you've heard of David Platt before, he wrote a book called Radical. Uh, David Platt was pastoring in the belt of the Bible buckle in Birmingham, Alabama, and he found himself growing kind of frustrated around what he was seeing in the scriptures versus what he was seeing in his church. In other words, what he was reading in the Bible was a type of discipleship, a following of Jesus that he was not experiencing or sensing in kind of a Southern Bible belty Americana religion. And he was getting frustrated with this because he was calling his church into a radical type of discipleship. And what they were doing, they were resistant to the call to follow Jesus. And what he was trying to teach them is the thing that we call radical, the thing that we would say is kind of crazy and out there for Jesus in the scriptures is actually just everyday, normal, mundane following of Jesus. And he kind of intentionally writes with a broad stroke. And what he wants to do is convict us in all the right ways. So what I want to do is just read a phrase from this book, and we'll have it on the screen. Follow along with me. Platt writes this. We American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with, a nice middle-class American Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who doesn't want us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. That's convicting for me, for sure. Now, the reason why I read that is we continue our journey through the gospel of Mark. There's now going to be a shift in what Mark is talking about. So in the first six or seven chapters, he is, Mark is laboring to tell us, who is this Jesus? Answering the question, who is this Jesus? And on repeat, this Jesus is Lord. He is Savior. He is Son of God. He is Son of Man. He is the one who came to redeem and ransom and reconcile us to the Father and to each other. And now he's going to shift and he's going to talk more about what Jesus has come to do. Not necessarily who he is, but what has he come to accomplish. And and I want you to look back at verse 27 with me. I want you to see a phrase in here. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and here it is, on the way. In the next three or four chapters, we're gonna see that phrase, on the way, on repeat, And what that phrase is telling us, it's cluing us into, is Jesus is moving somewhere. And particularly where Jesus is moving is back to Jerusalem and specifically back to Calvary's cross. You see it right there if you jump down into verse 31. Look at it with me. He began to teach them that the Son of Man himself must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again. And you look in verse 32, he said this plainly. Jesus is beginning to teach in clearer and simpler and more plain terms that he has come with a purpose and a goal. And that goal is to make his way back to Jerusalem, to go to Calvary's cross, to live and to die and to be resurrected in the place of his followers. That is what the Messiah has come to do. 
And so as we journey through the next few chapters, chapter 8, 9, and 10, and a little bit after that, we're going to consider what is the Messiah coming to do, and what are the implications for us as followers of the Messiah, as disciples of the Messiah, all right? So let's just start two parts today, Messiahship and discipleship, and this is going to be an entry level into the next few weeks to come, all right? First section, Messiahship, Messiahship, let's consider this. All right, so this is who Jesus is and what he has come to do. I want to read back through verses 27 to 33. Read it with me. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Keep going with me. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, this is an incredible leap in faith for the disciples and for Peter in particular. What Jesus is going to begin doing here is clarifying who the Messiah is and what the Messiah has come to do. And there is confusion even from those closest to him about who the Messiah is and what the Messiah has come to do. So Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem, but he finds himself journeying through a city called Caesarea Philippi. Let's talk about that city for a second. Caesarea Philippi was an ancient city that was right on the, the border, the edges of the Holy Land and kind of Gentile pagan territory. It was right in the middle, a crossroads to connect the two regions. And not only that, but Caesarea Philippi would have been a city full of idolatry. If you were to visit that region, you would see some mountains and cliffs and caves. And inside those caves would have been carvings telling the history of Caesarea Philippi. There would have been carvings of idol worship. There would have been carvings of human and animal sacrifice. There would have been carvings of sexual perversion going on in this city. And in particular, in Caesarea Philippi, there was two kind of uh, false gods that the people worshipped. The first false god would have been a, a god called Pan, like Peter Pan, right? So Pan would have been this false god. And, and so I go to Disneyland, it feels like false worship there too. So. so Pan, I know I just took a shot on so many Disney lovers out there, but that's okay. That's okay. So Pan would have been kind of this false idol that they would have worshipped and followed and, and sacrificed to. And then the second false god they would have worshipped was the emperor of Rome, the emperor of Rome. They would have bowed down to him, sacrificed for him, gave him everything. And as this city developed, Herod the Great would have built, he did build a massive, large marble temple right in the middle of the city, built in honor of and for the worship of Pan and the emperor. emperor. And and then Herod the Great handed the city off to his son, Philip, where Philip then renamed the city. He named it Caesar, Caesarea, after the emperor, and he named it Philip after himself, right? So that takes some boldness there to be like, you should, you should name a city after me, and I, I, I deserve to be worshipped. Now, 
Here's what's going on here. Jesus goes right into the middle of false worship, idolatry, false gods that were elevated to the same footing as Jesus. And Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? And Jesus is wanting to say, I am the only true God. I am set apart from all false gods. I am not an idol on the same footing of everyone else. I am utterly unique, supreme. I am preeminent. I am set above all things. But then the disciples say, well, the crowds, they're saying, you know, you're you're like John the Baptist. Maybe you're Elijah. Maybe you're one of the prophets. They were beginning to have influences from culture and from the crowds around them informing who they thought Jesus was, even though they were closest to him. And now here's the deal. Here's what's going on. Even those closest to Jesus were beginning to see Jesus in the wrong light. They were misunderstanding who the Messiah was. Now, this is true for every one of us in this room as well. We might be rolling our eyes right now and saying, I've never sacrificed to a false idol. I've never gone into a clay cave and done some some, uh, carvings to, you know, idol worship and human sacrifice. I've never done that. But the truth is every single one of us is susceptible to culture and crowds and people infiltrating us and beginning to confuse us around the identity of Jesus as Messiah. There's a case of mistaken identity on who Jesus is, and it's true of all of us. We are humans just like the people of Caesarea Philippi. So what I want to explore for a second, just as, as, as an aside here, uh, are some of the ways in which we in particular might begin to elevate Jesus and turn him into an idol in our own making, that we might change who Jesus actually is and, and what he has actually come to do. I, I think there's six, I'm going to give us six things, all right, six things that I think we're particularly susceptible to in our context, in our city, in our region here, a case of mistaken identity, First one, we might believe that Jesus is the big man upstairs. I don't know if this is, yep, it's on the screen here. Jesus is the big man upstairs. He's just this distant person in our lives. We speak about him in general terms with no understanding of who he truly is. This is likely some of us who who grew up in a Christian home and around Christian things, but never had an experience with Jesus. We just know him as a distant person we've heard about in our upbringing. And then we all go to weddings or funerals or celebrations, and we hear someone get on the mic and say, hey, it's all credited to the big man upstairs. Stairs, And there's kind of this awkward, uncomfortable laugh going on because we all know there's actually no substance to that. There's no meaning to that. What does it mean that Jesus is the big man upstairs? And so the true identity of Jesus is not that he's some distant God, the big man upstairs. The truth is that Jesus is the king of the universe, sovereign over every molecule of this universe. And not only is he sovereign over all things, he is not distant. He is near and close and intimate down to the very fractions of our lives. He might be called the big man upstairs. Another mistaken identity might be that Jesus is the secret ingredient to all my accomplishments. We get the raise, we get the promotion, we get the relationship, and all of a sudden, Jesus gets all the credit here. This is Tim Tebow in 2008 in the BCS National Championship game. He wins, he beat the Oklahoma Sooners, and he goes up to the interview. He's got eye black on, it says John 3.16, and then he's got, I can do all things, written on his cleats, and he says, man, this happened because Jesus loves me. I asked him, and it happened. And I remember watching that, and even thinking, as a new Christian, What about all the Christians on the Oklahoma Sooners? Did Jesus hate them? 
Did he only love Tim Tebow and give Tim Tebow the victory? Or did he also love all of those Christians on the Sooners as well? Now, the truth is, anything successful we do in this life, it's a free gift of God's grace. But Jesus is so much more than the secret ingredient to our accomplishments. Jesus is not just with us in the victories. He's also with us in the defeat. He's not just with us in the uh, the sailing of life. He's also with us in the suffering of life. And this is so much better news. If Jesus was only with us when things are going good, then we would have no king at all. But Jesus is with us through it all, showing his heart for us. We might call Jesus the lifeline on who wants to be a millionaire, right? You've watched the show. We've all done, we've all seen it where the person, the first the $400, the $800, the whatever, $2,000 question, they got it. It's easy. Two plus two is four. And, and then all of a sudden they get to the $64,000 question. It's chemistry and they're stumped. So what do they have to do? They call in a lifeline. What's my lifeline? I'm going to phone a friend. I'm going to call my friend who teaches chemistry and he's going to bail me out of this scenario. He is, he is my lifeline. And the truth is, so often we have turned Jesus into nothing more than our lifeline when things are hard, when the marriage is good, when the finances are good, when the kids are kind of behaving as best they can, when there's a roof over our head, man, it's all good. But the second things get hard, we turn into functional atheists, saying that Jesus lives with our mouths, but living as if he does not exist. And the hard part is that, yes, Jesus is the one who bails us out, but he is so much more than that. He is not just an afterthought when things get hard. He is our only thought, our first thought, the one that we alone worship. Jesus might be called the scapegoat for my poor decisions. Okay, this is a big one. We've all, maybe we, I have, I don't know if you have. I've been on the other end of a girl breaking up with me because God told her to, right? We've all done that. Someone's like, I consulted God and you know what? He told me to break up with you. And it's like, no, you can just say you don't like me very much. I get it. Like, just tell me the truth here. I'm used to people not liking me at this point in life. So just tell me. But Jesus then becomes this scapegoat when we have to make the hard decisions in life. I committed adultery because, well, you know what? I talked with Jesus. He said, it's okay. I'm the one exception to the command. I don't have to live generously because my name is there by the asterisks and I don't have to do it, even though Jesus told me to. In the name of Jesus, we make our poor decisions and who am I to argue with God? Who are you to argue with God? We might call Jesus our homeboy. You guys remember that when I was growing up? Jesus is my homeboy, those, those t-shirts. And yes, Jesus is our friend. The Bible teaches that. But what we've, do, we've done is turn Jesus into the friend that is nothing more than our divine cheerleader who has come to give us nothing but affirmation, nothing but applause, nothing but celebration from all, for all of our decisions. He's never the friend that tells us the hard thing. He's never the friend that admonishes us or rebukes us or corrects us. He's only the friend that tells me everything I can do is good. Jesus wants me to have a good time after all, right? So again, I, I, I'm, call, I, I'm called to live a life that's holy with my tongue, but you know what? I have a problem with gossip, but I don't feel convict, conviction about my slanderous tongue because Jesus is my friend and he says it's all right. Jesus tells me that I, I don't need to walk in drunkenness and addiction, but we bond over video games and craft brews, so it's all good. He's good with me. He's good with that. Jesus, all he wants for me is the best life now. He's my homeboy. 
And then finally, we might think that Jesus is the loan officer. And I saved this one for last because I detest it the most. In, in, in making Jesus our loan officer, we've turned him into our piggy bank, our endless credit card with no interest, no fees, no need to pay it back. Jesus is just free money. And I wanna rant here because there's false peddlers of the gospel that are telling us that Jesus exists for my health, for my wealth, and for my happiness. And all I have to do is conjure up enough faith and he's gonna give me everything I want. He wants my business to flourish. He wants me to have more money in the bank account. He wants me to not ever have to visit is it a doctor's office? And friends, that's not in the Bible. Amen. Hear me. That is nowhere in the Bible. Jesus, in healing us of our sin, has healed us of the greatest thing in this life. We now have life with him now and forevermore. So what is health and wealth in worldly terms? It is nothing. It can't sustain us. Jesus is so much more than our loan officer. We are called to be people who follow Jesus even if we don't have health, even if we don't have wealth because he died to save me. I can keep going, but I'm gonna watch the clock here. Thanks, Pay. This is insidious, this is evil, it's sinister, and it plagues the American church. In just a few weeks, we're gonna have Eduardo Ferguson here from Columbia. And Eduardo's gonna come up here and he's gonna preach the gospel to us. And then he's gonna say, hey guys, I need a few hundred dollars a month to make sure my church keeps going in Columbia. And friends, he better get that out of our church. We are called to live generously. We are called to live for the sake of Jesus. And I'm not angry at you, hear me. I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at American preachers who have turned the gospel into my prosperity. It's not what it is. Now, there's confusion abounding in Caesarea Philippi. Who is this Jesus? Is he just John the Baptist? Is he Elijah the prophet? Is he nothing more than Pan? Is he the emperor of Rome? No, no, no. Jesus then asks a more pointed question. He looks directly at the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? He makes this thing personal. Not what is culture, not what the crowds say. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, bless his heart, gets it right for once. Probably the only time he gets it right. And he says to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the king. And Jesus says, yes and amen. I am the Messiah. But before he lets them get off on the wrong path, he immediately launches into teaching them what the Messiah has come to do. Read verse 31 with me again. He began to teach the disciples that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus teaches that as the Messiah, as the Christ, I have not come to create a political kingdom, a nationalistic kingdom where Israel becomes, you know, the the center of the universe and I obliterate all other nations. That's not what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to give his life for the sake of peoples everywhere, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He has died and given up his blood that those in sin might be redeemed and brought into his heavenly kingdom. That's what the Messiah has come to do. He has not come to create a political kingdom. He has come to create a godly universal kingdom made up of everyone from everywhere. He is the king over all things. 
And unlike all other kings in human history, he has not said, you serve me. He says, I came to serve you and give my life up as a ransom for many. Jesus came to save the subjects by dying for them. He is an altogether different king. So Peter then hears this and he's naturally offended. No, no, Jesus, you're not gonna die. And Peter's like, he gets it wrong. Like three seconds after he gets it right, he gets it so wrong and he's gonna rebuke Jesus. Like, what is wrong with you, bro? Just sit down and zip it for a second. Just be quiet. I trust, trust me, it's gonna go better. As someone who talks a lot, I get myself in trouble a lot with my tongue and Peter just needs to just be quiet. I, I need to be quiet once in a while. Anyways, Peter gets it wrong and says, no, Jesus, you're not gonna die. And Jesus is like, all right, he went there. And he calls him Satan. Like, would you want Jesus to call you Satan? That's terrifying. He says, no, no, no. You got it wrong, Peter. I've got it right. I tell you the terms. You follow me. You don't dictate the terms. You don't tell me what's going on here. I have come to fulfill the Father's will. And the Father's will is that I would live, die, and be resurrected in the place of people from all times, all places, and all history. Those who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. I am the Messiah, the King, and the King has come to die to save my subjects. That's who the Messiah is, and that's what the Messiah has come to do. We'll explore more of that in the coming weeks. That's the Messiah. He's not our loan officer. He's not the big man upstairs. He's not the scapegoat for my poor decisions. He, he's not the one that we use as a lifeline. He is the king, okay? He is the crucified king and the resurrected king. Part number two, discipleship. Discipleship. Look again at the end of verse 33 with me. The reason why Peter gets it so wrong is because he is not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Without missing a beat, Jesus then teaches a little mini sermon to his followers and says to them, here's what it means to follow me. Here's what it means to have the mind of God, not the mind of man when it comes to following Jesus. Re read on with me, 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Jesus is gonna give three things here of what it means to be a disciple of him. And here's the truth. If he is a crucified Messiah, we are crucified disciples. If he is a Messiah who takes on the cross, we are disciples who take on the cross. There are three ways that Jesus describes this. The first way in verse 34, Jesus teaches that discipleship and self-centeredness are at odds. They don't come together. Jesus says in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. 
True disciples of Jesus know that following Jesus means denying self. That is to say, we deny our own self-centered ambitions and self-love. We deny that. Our Savior denied his own self-interest in the cross, and in following him, we deny our own self-interest. Listen, discipleship is not a part-time volunteer gig that we use as an add-on to our lives. Discipleship demands our whole life. God is not someone that we can control. God controls us. Those who are truly following God every single day wake up and say, not my will, but your will be done. I live for the Father, not for me. How do we know that we're giving up our own self? How do we know we're denying self? We freely give up our right to self-determination. We live as Christ directs us, not as we direct ourselves. We treasure and value Jesus more than ourselves, more than our comforts, more than our aspirations. We gladly say no to self in order to say yes to Jesus. In other words, we crucify the idol of I, the idol of me. And Luke 9.23 tells us, adds on to this verse and says, takes up his cross daily. This is a daily reality, not something we do one time when we want to follow Jesus. We wake up every single day and say, God, I'm in love with myself, but I want to be in love with you more than myself. Uh, God, I want to follow myself, but I want to follow you more than I follow myself. This is not natural and this is not normal, but it's necessary. And let me remind you, this was not natural and normal that Jesus would die on the cross, but it was necessary that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. So we gladly say, what is not natural and normal to me, I'm gonna give up in order to do what's necessary. And what's necessary is following Jesus. And Jesus's was a slow and a painful death, an agonizing death on the cross. And so in disciple, following Jesus as disciples, it is a slow and a painful and an agonizing death to the things that I want for myself. Let me give some examples here. I think there's two primary ways that our self-centeredness is on display in our culture, our, our calendars and our bank accounts, right? So many of us look at our calendars and say, this is for me. How many of us hedge our bets? We, 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 we get an invitation to something and we say maybe to it in case something better comes along. We don't truly want to commit to it but when it comes to Jesus, he says, no, 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 I own your calendar. You don't live for your own sake, your own comfort. I own that thing. Do our calendars revolve around what Jesus is doing in this world? Are we gladly living for the sake of Jesus? Are we on mission for Jesus? Do we live to serve and love our neighbors? Do we live to serve and love our church? Are our lives, is our church involvement, man, Sundays from nine, I guess for you guys, 9.15 to about 10.05, I haven't done that in months, okay? I had to get it in when I can. Our calendars revolve around Jesus. And if we just look at our calendars for a second and say, is this calendar self-centered or is it about following Jesus? The second way I believe this plagues us is with our money. And I know it's a sensitive subject, but honestly, I don't really care. We need to live for the sake of Jesus with our finances, if our finances are all about getting the bigger house, the vacation home, another surgery, another boat, whatever it might be, then we are not living freely with our money for the sake of Jesus. Jesus has called us to live and give until it hurts. Jesus, in the world that we live in, with our finances and our incomes and our jobs, it, it doesn't hurt to give a few percent. It doesn't hurt any of us. 
We can still pay our bills and do all the fun things we wanna do in this life. What Jesus says when it comes to generosity, I want you to alter your lifestyle because you are giving so much for the sake of me. And I know that can sound self-interested. I'm the preacher after all, but listen, hear me. In turning our calendars and our bank accounts into discipleship things that are only for the sake of Jesus, trust me, you will have so much joy on the other end of that. On the other end of Jesus denying himself and taking up his cross and dying for our sins, the Bible says he found joy on the other side of it. And that joy would be his inheritance, us following him and worshiping him forever. And as we freely live for the sake of Jesus, we find so much more joy than living for self. So let us, church, take our eyes off ourselves for just a moment and live for the sake of Jesus. Number two. Jesus tells us that true discipleship is dangerous. That's in verse 35. Read it again with me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus gives a simple math equation that is radically countercultural. You wanna save yourself? You wanna live for yourself? You're gonna die. But if you wanna live for me, which feels like death, you're gonna find true life. That's what Jesus tells us about discipleship. And remember, in Platt's quote at the very beginning, he said, Jesus wants us to live risky lives for the sake of him. He wants us to live dangerous lives. But the truth is, I've I've watched for the last two years, everyone live for the sake of self-preservation. That myself and my family preservation is everything. Living for the sake of others and being dangerous for Jesus? No, no, no. I gotta preserve myself. Listen, Jesus has saved us forever. We fear no man. We fear no situation. We fear no circumstance. We are going to live forever. That's true for every Christian in this room. We have no need to self-preserve. Jesus didn't. He has given us new life. He has defeated death. There's an empty tomb to prove it. So we fear not death, we fear not danger. And the truth is, the real Christian life that you read in the scriptures is risky. Give away my money, help others in need, welcome the orphan and the widow and the foreigner, welcome the outcast into my home and my life. My kids are there. Move across the globe for the sake of Jesus. Go to unreached places. Try to reach my neighbors. Resist cultural temptations. This is a risky and a dangerous life, but this is the life of discipleship of truly following Jesus. This is dangerous, but it's worth it. But Jesus faced the danger of the cross for our sake. And in, crucified, in being crucified disciples, we face our daily cross. C.T. Studd says this. I love that last name. We will dare to trust our God and we will do it with his joy unspeakable and singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. Unlike some contemporary peddlers of a false gospel, Jesus does not offer us some type of self-fulfillment experience or the ease of a comfortable life. Jesus presents us with a cross. He doesn't say, try this cross on for size, and if you like it, you can keep it. He doesn't say, take this cross here and there when you feel like it, and you'll get some extra credit. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, die for my sake. It's that simple. Jesus speaks these words plainly. Third, Jesus says, discipleship means being wholly surrendered to Jesus. This is in verses 36 through 38. I'm not gonna read it. I'm watching the clock here. Jesus is saying, In these words, you cannot simultaneously be attached to the world and to him. 
You cannot simultaneously be surrendered to the things of the world and the things of Jesus. You cannot straddle a fence. You cannot have one foot in and one foot out. There is no in between. Jesus is all and Jesus demands all. And this is the normal Christian life of discipleship. The path may be hard and confusing, but the end of the path is absolute glory for all of his people. I wanna read an extended quote here from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this, The cross is laid on every, every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon attachments to this world. It is the dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Jesus summons to the rich young ruler was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can truly follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is the call to die with all our affections and lusts. We do not want to die, and therefore Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus means both death and life. We must be wholly surrendered to Jesus in both death and life putting to death the old man, putting to death our own attachments to the world, putting to death our own self-interest in order to be wholly surrendered to Jesus. And then Jesus speaks some sobering words at the end. He says, listen, if you're not willing to do these things, if you're not willing to take up your cross, if you're not willing to lose your life for my sake, if you're not willing to be wholly surrendered to me, then that just shows you're ashamed of me. And then the weighty words sit on all of us. If you're ashamed of me, then I'm ashamed of you. It's a little terrifying. Jesus, in these words, wants to tell us what a serious reality following him is. This is not a game. It's not something we do just because we've always done it. It is something that is very serious and demands our whole life. Neil Postman in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, says this, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Here's what I'm attempting to do today. As we enter into this new section of Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah, and here's what you do as my disciples, he is showing us what his real work is is. His real work is not one of him being a piggy bank or a cheerleader or a lifeline or a big man upstairs, but he is the Messiah, the King, and the King who faces a cross for us. And then he says, when you drop your nets and you follow me, he is saying, you are willingly walking in the crucified life. And what I want you to see in denying ourselves, in denying uh, our our self-interest, in denying our own ambitions is where we're going to find true life and true joy. But in denying Christ, that's where we're going to find true shame and true guilt. It is the gospel and the gospel alone that can save us. And the gospel tells us what verse 31 says. Jesus came to live and to die and to be resurrected for our sins. 
And when we freely receive this gift of grace, we are saved now and forevermore. That is a finished work. But then Jesus says, as my followers, I now demand some things of you. Yes, you're saved, but I also want you to be sanctified. I want you to grow in looking like me. And that is the process of discipleship. And this is a hard and an agonizing process. But as his followers, we gladly say, I'm gonna lay down my self-centeredness. I'm gonna lay down the idol of me. I'm gonna lay down false worship. I'm gonna lay down being surrendered to the things of this world in order to follow Jesus alone. Let me finish with a quote from Thomas Kempis. Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, few who long for distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of the bread, few as far as the drinking of the cup of suffering. Many that revere his morality, few that follow the indignity of his cross. Many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them. Many that praise and bless him as long as they receive comfort from him. But should Jesus hide from them and leave them for a while, they fall to complaining or become deeply depressed. Those who long for Jesus for his own sake, not for the sake of their own comfort and gain, bless him in times of trouble and heartache as much as when they are full of consolation. Plainly put, Jesus has no interest in filling his ranks with half-committed volunteers who profess verbal allegiance to him and talk grandly of victory, but are not willing to walk in the sacrifice of truly following a crucified Messiah. Now, Story Church, we live and we are surrounded by wealthy suburbia. All the traps of this world surround us daily. We have to be alert to these things. We have to resist these things in order to follow Jesus because the truth is none of those things we chase in vain can truly satisfy the longings of our soul. Only Jesus can. And when we find we're truly at the end of ourselves and laying everything down for his sake, that's where Jesus says we find life. And every one of us is looking for and yearning for life and that's what we want in this world. That's where it's found. So if you're not a Christian, I just wanna invite you, be willing to follow Jesus. That's, that's what it means right there. These are hard words from Jesus, all right? Don't shoot the preacher, don't shoot the messenger. That's straight from God's word to us. Be willing to follow him because you will find true life and joy and forgiveness of sin and the cure for the heartache of your soul. All you gotta do is repent and trust in him. And for the Christians in the room and listening online to us, hear me. Let us be crucified disciples, willingly crucifying all the things that we think are truly gonna satisfy us. But at the end of the day, in our heart of hearts, in the quiet moments, laying in bed, we know we're not satisfied by these things. These things aren't fulfilling me. This isn't doing anything. Let us willingly lay all of those things down for the sake of Jesus and his glory. There's so much life to be had there. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he did willingly take the cross for our sake. That he woke up and said every single day, not my will, but your will be done, Father. May we become like him. May we see him as the one who lived in our place, died for our sins and was resurrected and gifts us freely new life in him. Would we be disciples that say, because Jesus died for me, I'm willing to die for him. 
I'm willing to die to these worldly trappings. I'm willing to die to these false idols. I'm willing to die to my self-interest. I'm willing to die and, and kill my sin for the sake of Jesus. And then God, as we do that, as we do the hard, painful, agonizing work of dying to self in order to live for Jesus, would you gift us the true joy that's promised in the gospel, the true life, the true hope, the true peace that's found in the gospel. Happiness is not found by fixing our eyes on the things of man, but fixing our lives on the things of God. Would we be a church that freely does that? We pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen.